Chapter Three of the Box with the Broken Seals by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mr. Jocelyn Thew descended presently from his taxicab outside one of the largest and most cosmopolitan hotels in New York or the world. He made his way with the air of a habitué to the bar, the precincts of which, at that time in the late afternoon, were crowded by a motley gathering. He ordered a scotch highball and gently insinuated himself into the proximity of a group of newspaper men with whom he seemed to have some slight acquaintance. It was curious how, since his arrival in this democratic meeting place, his manners and deportment seemed to have slipped to a lower grade. He seems as though, by effort of will, to have lost something of his natural air of distinction, to be treading the earth upon a lower plane. He saluted the barkeeper by his Christian name, listened with apparent interest to an exceedingly commonplace story from one of his neighbors, and upon its conclusion drew a little nearer to the group. Say, he exclaimed confidentially, if I felt in the humor for it, I could hand you boys out a great scoop. They were on him like a pack of hungry, though dubious wolves. He pushed his glass out of sight, accepted one of the drinks, pressed upon him, and leaned nonchalantly against the counter. What should you say, he began, to Miss Catherine Beverly, the New York Society young lady? Sister Catherine of St. Agnes, one of them interrupted. "'Daughter of old Joe Beverly, the multimillionaire,' another exclaimed. "'Both right,' Jocelyn Threw acquiesced. "'What should you say to that young woman, "'leaving her hospital and her house in Riverside Drive, "'breaking all her engagements at less than twenty-four hours' notice, "'to take a sick Englishman, whom no one knows anything about, "'back to Liverpool on the city of Boston tomorrow?' "'The story's good enough,' a ferret-faced little man at his elbow acknowledged. "'But is it true?' Jocelyn Thew regarded his questioner with an air of pained surprise. "'It's gossible,' he assured them all. "'But you don't need to take my word. "'You go right along up and inquire at the Beverly House tonight, "'and you'll find that she is packing. "'Made up her mind just an hour ago. "'I'm about the only one in the know.' "'Who's the man, anyway?' one of the little group asked. "'Nothing doing,' Jocelyn Thew replied mysteriously. "'You've got to find that out for yourself, boys. "'All I can tell you is that he's an Englishman, "'and she has known him for a long time. "'Kind of love stunt, I imagine. "'She wasn't having any. "'But now he's at death door. "'She seems to have relented. "'Anyway, she is breaking every engagement she's got giving up her chairmanship of the War Hospital Committee, and she isn't going to leave him while he's alive. There's no other nurse going, so it'll be a night-and-day job for her. "'What's the matter with the chap, anyway?' another questioner demanded. "'No one knows for sure,' was the cautious reply. "'He's been operated upon for appendicitis, but I fancy there are complications. Not much chance for him, from what I've heard.' The little crowd of men melted away. Jocelyn Thew smiled to himself on his way out as he watched four of them climb into a taxicab. 
"'That establishes Phillips, all right, as Mrs. Beverly's protégé,' he murmured, as he turned into Fifth Avenue, and now... He stopped short in his reflection. His careful scrutiny of the heterogeneous crowd gathered together around the bar had revealed to him no unfamiliar type, save the little man who at that moment was ambling along on the other side of the way. Jocelyn Thew slackened his pace somewhat and watched him keenly. He was short, he wore a cheap, ready-made suit of some plain material, and a straw hat tilted on the back of his head. He had round cheeks, he shambled rather than walked, and his vacuous countenance seemed both good-natured and unintelligent. To all appearances, a more harmless person never breathed, yet Jocelyn Thew, as he studied him earnestly, felt that slight tightening of the nerves which came to him almost instinctively in moments of danger. He changed his purpose and turned down Fifth Avenue instead of up. The little man, it appeared, had business in the same direction. Jocelyn Thew walked the length of several blocks in leisurely fashion and then entered a hotel, studiously avoiding looking behind him. He made his way into a telephone booth and looked through the glass door. His follower, in a few moments, was visible, making apparently some aimless inquiry across the counter. Jocelyn Thew turned his back upon him and asked the operator for a number. Number 238 Park waiting, the latter announced a few moments later. Jocelyn Thew re-entered the box and took up the receiver. That you, Rental? he asked. Speaking was the guarded reply. Who is it? Jocelyn Thew, say, what's wrong with you? Don't go away. What is it? Speak quickly, please. You seem rather nervy up there. I'm off to Europe tomorrow on the city of Boston, and I should like to see you before I go. There was a moment's silence. Why don't you come up here, then? I'd rather not, Jocelyn Thew observed laconically. The fact of it is I have a friend around who doesn't seem to care about losing sight of me. If you are going to be anywhere around near Jimmy's about seven o'clock... That goes, was the somewhat agitated reply. Ring off now. There's someone else waiting to speak. Jocelyn Thew paid for his telephone call and walked leisurely out of the hotel with a smile upon his lips. The stimulus of danger was like wine to him. The little man was choosing a cigar at the stall. As he leaned down to light it, Jocelyn Thew's practice eye caught the shape of a revolver in his hip pocket. English, he murmured softly to himself, probably one of Crayshaw's lot preparing a report for him when he returns from Chicago. With an anticipatory smile, he entered upon the task of shaking off his unwelcome follower. He passed with a confident air of a member into a big club situated in an adjoining block, left it almost at once by a side entrance, found a taxicab, drove to a subway station uptown, and finally caught an express back again to 14th Street. Here he entered without hesitation a small, foreign-looking restaurant, which intruded upon the pavement only a few yards from the iron staircase by which he descended from the station. There were two faded evergreen shrubs in cracked pots at the bottom of the steps, 
soiled muslin curtains drawn across the lower half of the windows, dejected-looking green shutters which had the appearance of being permanently nailed against the walls, and a general air of foreign and tawdry profligacy. Jocelyn Thew stepped into a room on the right-hand side of the entrance, and making his way to the window, glanced cautiously out. There was no sign anywhere of the little man. Then he turned towards the bar, around which a motley group of Italians and Hungarians were gathered. The linen-clad negro, who presided there, met his questioning glance with a slight nod, and the visitor passed without hesitation through a curtained opening to the rear of the place, along a passage, up a flight of narrow stairs, until he arrived at a door on the first landing. He knocked, and was at once bidden to enter. For a moment he listened, as though to the sounds below. Then he slipped into the room and closed the door behind him. The apartment was everything which might have been expected, save for the profusion of flowers. The girl who greeted him, however, was different. She was of medium height and dark, with dark brown hair plaited closely back from an almost ivory-colored forehead. Her gray eyes were soft and framed in dark lines. Her eyebrows were noticeable, her mouth full but shapely. Her discontented expression changed entirely as she held out both her hands to her visitor. Her welcome was eager, almost passionate. "'Mr. Thew!' she exclaimed. He held up his hand, as though to check further speech, and listened for a moment intently. "'How are things here?' he asked. "'Quiet,' she assured him. "'You couldn't have come at a better time. Everyone's away. Is there anything wrong?' I'm being followed, he told her, and I don't like it, just now, at any rate. Anyone else coming? she inquired. Rental, he told her. He is in a mortal fright of having to come. They found his wireless, and they are watching his house. I must see him, though, before I go away. Going away? she echoed. When? When are you going? Tomorrow, he replied. I sail for London. She seemed for a moment absolutely speechless, consumed by a sort of silent passion that found no outlet in words. She gripped a fancy mat which covered an ornate table by her side, and dragged a begilded vase onto the floor without even noticing it. She leaned towards him. The little lines at the sides of her eyes were suddenly deep-riven like scars. Her eyes themselves were smoldering with fire. "'You're going to England?' "'That is what I propose,' he assented. "'I'm sailing on the city of Boston tomorrow afternoon.' "'But the risk,' she faltered. "'I thought that you dared not set foot in England.' "'There is risk,' he admitted. "'It is not easy to amuse oneself anywhere without it. "'I have been offered a hundred thousand pounds "'to superintend the conveyance of certain documents and a certain letter to Berlin. The adventure appeals to me, and I have undertaken it. Until I found this man following me this afternoon, I really believed that we had put everyone off the track. I know for a fact that most of the American officials believe that the papers for which they have searched so long and anxiously are in that trunk with the broken seals which they found at Halifax. What about the Englishman? Crawshay and Sam Hobson, the girl asked. They are not quite so credulous, he replied. 
but at the present moment they are in Chicago. And if we get off at four o'clock punctually tomorrow afternoon, I scarcely think I shall be troubled with their presence on the city of Boston. I have been reading about the trunk, the girl said. Is it really a fake? Entirely, he assured her. There is not a single document in it which concerns either us or our friends. Everything that is of vital importance will be on the city of Boston tomorrow and under my charge. She looked at him wonderingly. But, Mr. Thew, she exclaimed, you are clever, I know, even wonderful. But what possible chance have you of getting those things through on an American steamer, too? I have to take my risk, of course, he admitted coolly, but the game is worth it. I can't live without excitement, as you know, and it's getting harder and harder to find on this side of the ocean. Besides, there's the money. I can think of several uses for a hundred thousand pounds. She caught his wrist suddenly and leaned across the table. Can I come with you? she asked breathlessly. He shook his head. I shouldn't advise a sea voyage just now, Nora, he said. It isn't exactly a picnic nowadays. Besides, if you come on the city of Boston, there will be more than one danger to be faced. Danger, she exclaimed contemptuously. Have I ever shown myself afraid? Have we, any of us, my brother or father or I, hesitated to run any possible risk when it was worthwhile? This house has been yours, and we in it, to do what you will with. It isn't a matter of danger, you know that. I come or go as you bid me. He met the fierce inquiry in her eyes without flinching. Only his tone was a little kinder as he answered her. I think, Nora, he said, that you had better stay. There was a timid but persistent knocking at the door, and in response to Nora's invitation, a fat, bloated man entered the room hurriedly. He sank into a chair and mopped the perspiration from his forehead. Jocelyn Thew watched him with an air of contemptuous amusement. "'You seem distressed, Rital,' he remarked. "'Has anything gone wrong?' "'But it is terrible, this,' the newcomer declared. "'Anything gone wrong, indeed. Listen. The police have made themselves free of my house. My beautiful wireless. It was only a hobby. It has gone. They open my letters. They will ruin me. Never did I think that this would arrive.' There has been some terrible bungling. And you, Joyce, Thew retorted, seem to have been the arch-bungler. I? But what have I done? Rital demanded, wringing his hands. I've always obeyed orders. Even a hint has been enough. I've spent a great deal of money, much more than I could afford. What have I done wrong? You have talked too much, for one thing, was the cold reply. But we haven't time for recriminations now. How did you get here? I came in my car. You will perhaps say that it was not wise. But I could not have stood the subway. My nerves are all rotten. Jocelyn Thew's tone and gesture were smoothly disdainful. You are quite right, he agreed. You have lost what you call your nerve. You had better send for the newspaper men, give them plenty of champagne, and explain what a loyal American citizen you are. Have you burnt everything? Every scrap of paper in the house which concerns a certain matter is burnt, 
Rital declared. It would be. But I am in the right, the agitated man protested vigorously. For five years we had worked, and with good result. It is finished with us now, for the present. There is no one who would dare to continue. Five long years, mind you, Mr. Jocelyn Thew. That is worth something, eh? Huh? Whatever it may be worth, was the somewhat grim reply, will be decided within the next fortnight. That doesn't concern you, though. You are not staying over here now that the war has come? Not I, but listen. There is no need for you to know where I am going, and I am not going to tell you. There is no need for you to remember that you even knew me in your life. There is no need for you to remember any of the work in which you have been engaged. Your propaganda has developed a few strong men in this country and discovered a good deal of pulp. You are part of the pulp. There is only one other thing. If you should be heard of, Rital, shall we say, telephoning or calling upon the police here, offering to sell. No, by God, you don't. The man's furtive tug at his hip pocket was almost pathetic in its futility. Jocelyn Thew had him by the throat, holding him with one hand well away from him, a quivering mass of discolored, terrified flesh. Now you know, he continued coolly, why I sent for you, Rital. Now you know why I rather preferred to see you here to coming to your Fifth Avenue mansion. I don't like traps. I don't like traitors. I give you my word, the breathless man began, my word of honor. Neither would interest me, the other interrupted grimly. You are to be trusted just as far as you can be seen, just as far as your own safety and welfare depend upon your fidelity. You needn't be so terrified, he went on. Leaning over, he took the revolver from the tall's pocket, drew out the cartridges, and threw it upon the table. You've earned any ugly thing that might be coming to you. But I should think it very probable that you will be able to go on overfeeding your filthy carcass for a few more years. First of all, though, perhaps you had better tell me exactly why you have an appointment with Mr. Harris from police headquarters at eleven o'clock tomorrow morning. Rital was white to the lips. I wanted to explain about the wireless, he faltered. That sounds very probable, was the contemptuous reply. What else? Nothing. Jocelyn Threw shrugged his shoulders. His victim cowered before him. For the first time the girl moved. She came a little nearer, and there was fury in her eyes as she looked down upon the terrified man. "'We could keep him here,' she whispered. "'Ned Grimes and some of the others will be in soon. There are plenty of ways of getting rid of him for a time.' "'It wouldn't be worthwhile,' Thu said simply. "'One doesn't commit crimes for such carrion.' Rital had struggled into a sitting position. He was dabbing feebly at his forehead with an overperfumed handkerchief. "'I wanted to make peace at headquarters,' he whined. "'I want to be left alone. I should not have told them anything.' "'That may or may not be,' Jocelyn Thru replied. "'All that I am fairly sure of is that you will keep your mouth shut now. You know,' he went on, his voice, growing a shade more menacing, that I never threaten where I do not perform. I may not be over here myself, 
but there will be a few men left in New York. And one word from your lips, even a hint, and your life will pay the forfeit within twenty-four hours. You will be watched for a time, you and a few others of your kidney, watched until the time has gone by when anything you could say or do would be of account. Have you anything more to say to me? The man stammered. I feel faint. His persecutor threw open the door. Nothing. Get into your car and drive home. Keep out of sight and hearing for a time. You are no particular ornament, nor any use to any country. But remember that everything you have done, you have done when the country of your birth was in trouble, and the country of your adoption was at peace. The situation is altered. The country of which you are a naturalized citizen is now at war. You had better remember it and decide for yourself where your duty lies. They listened to his heavy footsteps as he descended the stairs. The girl turned to her companion. Mr. Thew, she began, you are not a German or an Austrian, yet you are doing their work, risking your life every day. Is it for money? No, he replied, in a general way, it is not for money. What is it, then? she asked curiously. He stood, looking out across the roofs at the distant skyscrapers. She watched him without speaking. She knew very well that his eyes saw nothing of the landscape. He was looking back into some world of his own fancy, back, perhaps, into the shadows of his own life, concerning which no word that she or anyone else in the city had ever heard had passed his lips. End of chapter 3